0: It could be that lines are the first marks we ever made on the earth. The cave paintings of Lascaux or the Nazca lines in Peru. But lines are also the way the modern discipline of architecture was made. Literally the moment when design as an intellectual pursuit was separated from the material craft of moving heavy earthbound material. Drawings, whether at the scale of longitude and latitude or the scale of detailed medieval stitchery, remain the way we make our world or imagine that we do. This episode asks what neon tubes and transportation routes might bring in terms of fresh life to the drawing space of contemporary architecture. It also considers the new scales and materialities emerging architects are bringing to bear. When does a line become a lining? When can a pipe seem graphic? What does it mean to build worlds out of gas and glass, or to reimagine traffic as a line of flight? Or when does it make sense to leave lines behind? In the immense and growing pile of architectural techniques and conventions, we are comfortable discarding, at least for a time. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm history and theory coordinator and faculty here at SciArc. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means that we have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink just by juxtaposition how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. Christy Ballier is co-founder of Bear Ballier, a joint venture design practice with Kelly Baer. Bear Ballier's work has been exhibited internationally in the US Pavilion at the 2016 Venice Architecture Biennale and in various locations around the United States, including New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, Chicago, New Haven, and Pittsburgh. In 2018, they were named a finalist for the MoMA PS1 Young Architects program. I'm hoping that we can have a conversation about two things. On the one hand, I want to talk about linings. I'm fascinated by the kind of pipes um, becoming uh, coming from lines and going back into line work uh, that I see in some of your in some of your recent design that you've done with your partner Kelly Bear. Um, but I also see a kind of impulse to use sheets of things. Um, and crinkly surfaces, and sometimes even gold surfaces to line the interiors of things.
1: So I think that that's pretty interesting because they're kind of innate to architecture in a lot of ways. But I mean, our interest in it was uh, an interest to kind of take a profile, which is an outline, and volume, and negotiate that in the line, right? So that was territory that Kelly and I were trying to get to. So I would say like aligning to me feels really surface oriented. And while our work I think has a lot of surface articulation, it's usually motivated by a the relationship or the negotiation between profile and volume.
0: So the way that you guys will push aligned through some kind of, I don't know, Fattening or puffing mechanism when you guys deal with lines you're dealing with these puffed up um, uh, almost pill-like fat and in that case corrugated Mm -hmm. objects that no longer feel like vectors or even rasters They feel like volumes Mm -hmm. they have profiles, but they are made of sheets or extrusions.
1: The ones that you're specifically talking about, the ones that we use for the project, loud lines. And I yes. think in this instance, my, my partner Kelly is like really great at naming our projects. But it's quite important, the adjective that we assign to how we're working on something. And so like loudness, I think, is a, both an attitude and kind of a geometry that we're interested in bringing to the line. So that comes out in ways like the corrugation, which is sort of an excessive amount of profile.
0: The quality that you produce by using that corrugated fat stuff, which is very, very, very black, Mm -hmm. and has, uh, it's almost like inserting an oversized graphic Mm -hmm. into the world. It's as shocking as seeing a giant comma Hanging yeah, right. down right in the middle of the road, like the size of a the size of a school bus. That's a great analogy. Right, yeah. it's it's shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, it does something that I associate with an entirely architectural imagination, and it's a thing that makes me love that project and many of your projects. Is that you look at it, and it it switches something in your brain such that you're no longer able to see those types of things in the same way again. So I remember soon after you gave a presentation here at sci about that, about loud lines. Walking down from the Gold Line station nearby, walking down to school, and I just happened to see a truckload of those same kinds of pipes parked out uh, in front of a building down the street. And it was like my whole reality shifted because I could no longer see those things as little pieces of infrastructure or yeah. these, these kind of technical objects. They exceeded that and they became giant graphic pieces of architecture, loud lines basically, invading the ordinary streetscape of Los Angeles. And to me, the thing that makes architecture powerful is its ability to mess with our sense of ourselves, and our sense of what is possible and our sense of what is around us in surprising and challenging ways, even with very, very tiny constraints.
1: That ambition of Loud Lines, because it sits in a courtyard in New York City and it's meant to sort of be both an oasis um, in the summertime, but also a piece of art or like a conceptual infrastructure that allows people to perhaps look at their environment differently. And so those pipes, they're essentially used for drainage um, within within cities. So they're they're the infrastructure that is underground in most instances, right? So it's not like highways or bridges or that type of infrastructure. It's actually the lines within a city that we don't usually see. Um, But you know, in, in a place like New York and even Los Angeles and in many places and increasingly more places, kind of water management and bringing some visibility to that. Is, was, let's say, not a primary driver in that project, but was certainly something that was meant to sort of bring a secondary or a tertiary layer of, of meaning to that, of that project. In loud lines, in some ways, certainly the scale of those lines contributed to their loudness. But actually, I would say you know, 10% of that project had, had 80% of our design energy. And it was on the things that we called the knuckles. Right, and that's the moment when the the lines intersect. And that is I think the kind of the heavy territory of design from our perspective, where it's not diagram, it's not the structural model, it's not us understanding how this material works or is constructed or needs to be, but actually that territory where we actually try to understand all of those things and think about how it can kind of make a visual contribution or an aesthetic contribution that expands our understanding of
0: that element. The thing that's that's, uh, productive about turning the notion of the line as an artifact into something like lining, which still functions as a noun but can also be understood as a verb and as an ongoing thing, is that it's maybe moving what has been a kind of static catalog of uh, disciplinary expertise a bit further along. Like you said, that was most of the the design energy of the project. Um, is already a different way of thinking about the value of architecture, where it's less about kind of setting up surfaces, or setting up lines as outlines, or even setting up what you were describing earlier, which is, you know, the the kind of that weird, slippery interface between a profile or a silhouette and a volume. Mm -hmm. It's less about that, and in the actual doing, it becomes more about a moment where one thing has to talk to another, mm-hmm. and where things can be actually uh, a force into conversation, mm-hmm. um, and force into a collaboration.
1: We're constantly sort of thinking of, of kind of the negotiation that we are making. I think that our, both of us design, that territory of design that we work in, I think is so much richer because it's coming from two conversations, two ambitions that have to negotiate a singular output.
0: So when I look at your work with Kelly Baer, um, what I see is an increasing catalog of stuff that's covetable. And I, I think that's awesome because I think we need, we actually need, it's funny because there's a kind of onus on architecture right now as if to say the time for playing is over. In architecture, we need to become serious, and we need to tackle urgent technical and existential uh, problems. And uh, of course, that's true. But I would argue that you can't actually do that unless you're producing weird and delicious things. Because, like, you do have linings in your stuff. Like, like, you're producing like kind of like volumes that are sliced through, and then they're lined. Yeah, exactly. I think
1: more provocative about your question is that I think we approach projects at all scales as if they're all interior. If I think of the Detroit project that we did for the Venice Biennale, which was the first project that we Kelly and I did together, we designed that assembly or curation of of buildings with the equal design of them as kind of singular masses that you would look at, therefore you'd be seeing they're kind of outside, but their relationship to one another as if that space in between them was an interior. And so then the finishes that those massings got was kind of of a delicacy that you would think about as an interior as opposed to a kind of, you know, a more of a aggressive shell, right? Yeah. So they have that quality of lining, I think, if, if I could kind of loosen up my understanding of it, um, as opposed to kind of a hard, a hard shell. And, you know, we got some critique. They kind of talked about that project as being sort of a, a plate of pralines, and I—that I it. makes a lot of sense to me in terms of how we worked on it and the kind of the specificity that each one of those massings has, but that they really feel kind of like a set, and there's like a delicacy to them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and there's kind of an interiority about them.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe that's one of the things that is ultimately fresh and challenging in equal parts about your work. We need more interiors. We need more interior thinking, actually. Uh, we have a lot of hard gels in the world and we have shown a certain indifference to the insides of things and maybe that's time for that to change. You can see Christy Ballier's work at com. That's B-A-I-R-B-A-L-L-I-E-T dot com. Now, a completely different scale of lines, from architectural graphics and shells to the dynamic sprawl of Los Angeles, a city that is as famed for its bright red strings of taillights as it is for its palm trees, pollution-colored sunsets, and rich creative culture. So I'm here today with Dr. Joshua Shank, who is the Chief Innovation Officer, the first of your kind, I believe, at the LA Metro. What exactly does that mean, Chief Innovation Officer? Sounds awesome.
2: You know, it really is awesome. I have a great time, uh, not only the Chief Innovation Officer, but in the Office of Extraordinary Innovation, which is quite the title and gives us, uh, gives us lots of benefits and drawbacks. But what, what we do is, our, essentially, our job is to bring new ideas to LA Metro from uh, innovators, uh, whether private sector or elsewhere, who have ideas about how we could partner with using new technology or new ideas to improve mobility in Los Angeles. And that includes uh, allowing anyone to submit an idea and trying to evaluate whether it's something we want to do, which is called our unsolicited proposal policy. Uh, but it also includes setting the strategic direction for Los Angeles County and Los Angeles Metro um, through our strategic planning process, which is something that is a critical component of innovation.
0: Yeah, so not only do you have to solicit innovation in a way that allows a diversity of different creative voices to be present, but you also need to make it possible to implement the best ideas that you get in some kind of framework. So what are the most exciting ideas that you've seen come through your office?
2: Like looking at how do we charge people to use the transportation system and are we doing it correctly? Because Um, The way we currently charge people to use our roadway system is we don't. It's essentially free uh, for for use at any time. And that's incredibly inefficient and causing a tremendous amount of challenges uh, in our transportation network.
0: It seems as though, for me, the challenge would be, how do you, if the the only way to regulate something is to charge people, knowing that often it's the poorest people... Or the people that are, that are kind of stretched the thinnest financially that are taking undertaking the longest, most inconvenient drives across vast swaths of this incredibly inefficient city. How do you do so in a way that's equitable?
2: And I think that's a key question when it comes to the implementation of, of congestion pricing or any kind of pricing mechanism. But I would flip it on its head a little bit. Is the best way to address those inequities to give everyone things for free? Or is the best way to address those inequities to give them to, for free to the people who can't afford to use them and to charge the people who can? And I would argue it's the latter. So right now we're just giving it away for free to everybody, including wealthy people, which is, to my mind, very inefficient. And what would make more sense is we charge everyone, but then we charge everyone and then carve out rather than where we are now, which is charge no one, which is really, in my mind, biased against the lowest income people because we're charging... Uh, nothing to the people who could afford to pay for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, I wonder if you couldn't do something where you just kept everything free and started charging certain people.
2: The problem with doing it that way is now you're saying we're going to uh, we're going to give it for free but we're going to charge people purely on the basis of income, and then you're not necessarily addressing the mobility issue. right? The way the mobility issue gets addressed is by setting the price in a way that allows the traffic to flow freely. right? So just to kind of give you an example, I'm sure that you've been in Los Angeles on days when the Los Angeles Unified School District is closed. You may have noticed that traffic flows much more freely. That's a small percentage of people who are now off the roads, but a lot of benefit from that. If your goal is to improve mobility, which is our goal, you want to start with what's the price we have to set for the roads that will get just enough people to either change from driving to transit or to not drive at that time or to carpool or whatever other changes we need to make, just that price that will then allow the traffic to flow freely. And you have to start with that. And then you can say, okay, but there are these people who cannot, if we do this, they have no alternative and we have to take care of them. And you use some of the money you're collecting from the wealthy people to compensate them.
0: Love it. Now, are you assuming that in a city that's as spread out and vast as LA, that driving will continue to be the primary mechanism for transport? Or do you see that shifting over to sort of ever denser uh, transport networks, public transport networks?
2: Well, so right now, approximately 95% of people uh, drive alone. Uh, for for trips in Los Angeles County. It's a very high number for such a dense city, actually. But there's a lot of opportunity to change that from where it is 95% to something less.
0: Yeah, I know that in some areas of the world... It's just so much more efficient to take public and do a little bit of walking. And so even people who own fancy cars and who would really prefer to have their own kind of bubble around them, if they're in a hurry, they'll jump on public. I think it would be awesome to be able to get to that point in L.A. I
2: think it's already true in some parts of the city. It's just that our network is a little bit limited right now. But I think of the network as being where do we have priority for public transit vehicles. So we have priority on rail lines, right? Because rail lines typically have their own right of way. And we have a few bus lanes or bus uh, rapid transit lines where we have priority. But the vast majority of almost every other road in this county is not prioritized that way. Just as an example, I take the red line to work every day and it saves me time and aggravation and... Everything you know and money compared to driving pretty dramatically because of where I live and where I happen to work. It's just unfortunate that I'm the exception at the moment because there are so few places that we're able to cover with these rights of way that are giving priority to transit vehicles.
0: There was, of course, a time in LA's history when it was largely a rail-based transport system, and there were there were actually um, quite impressive networks of rail transit here. I'm just wondering if there are connections between current traffic patterns and where things are efficient or where things are inefficient and the kind of historic redlining practices or other kinds of planning practices that have so dramatically shaped certain neighborhoods and certain priorities over time in the city?
2: Well, I think there's a a couple things to unpack here. One is that while we had a very extensive rail network in LA at one point most of that network was not in its own right of way. So most of that network was still competing with cars for space, as opposed to what we're building now, which is mostly rail that is not competing with cars for space. And I think that what makes LA a little bit different is that much of the city was built on the concept of real estate speculation. And you know, in, in other cities, you had a, a core um, business that was not just real estate. A lot of what, what made LA expand was people just buying more real estate. And, and that was a big part of the economy. And the problem with a real estate based economy is that people are not looking to try to make sure that the transportation network is driving the real estate investment. They're letting the real estate investment drive the transportation network. And that's, a, that's why we have so many problems. And I think that that was certainly worse for the areas that were redlined as was almost everything else
0: yeah it's interesting because it's such a sharp distinction between the model that you're describing and let's say the streetcar suburb developments in the, the surroundings of boston for example um, where the whole thing was predicated on a very clear commitment to how are we going to get particular communities in and out of this, the city and also give them quality of life to and from work.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, this the cities that you're describing. You know, they, those were places where, in a lot of cases, you had a very dense core that was created before there were even streetcars, before there was anything other than walking and horses, right? And then from there, they said, okay, this is too dense. This is not comfortable. So we've got to build some transportation networks that open up the land for development that's further out. And then the city uh, grew from there. And as much as there were a lot of um, divisions along racial lines that occurred from that uh, and and in, in, in that system as well, there was a forced integration of a sorts that still exists today in a lot of those cities, right? So you were saying earlier about some cities where Rich people ride the subway. If you look at the demographics on the New York City subway, it matches the demographics of the entire city. So there's a tremendous amount of interaction between rich and poor that happens on public transportation. If you look at LA, that kind of interaction does not happen. There is much less understanding and interaction between people of different races and classes in a city like Los Angeles where so many people are confined to their vehicles than there are in these other cities that developed in a different way.
0: My strongest impressions from living in London for a while when I was doing um, research, um, the London tube system is magnificently miserable. I mean, it is is highly efficient and and really is to be lauded in lots of technical ways. But as an experience, it's dreadful, particularly during the summer. And yet you would see the elite of the city on those things every day because there's no other way to get around. And it was just a common experience and crazy stuff would happen. And that's the way it is. And having that kind of shared life to the city seems like such a good way to get people to think about each other as neighbors. How important is it to you that the work that you do could really inflect the psyche of the city?
2: Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, I think that a lot of the inequities we see in society, and and as we know, the the gap between rich and poor is growing in this country. Um, I think a lot of that, that inequity is exacerbated by the isolationist culture that dominates much of America. So I think it is a real issue in our society, and I do think that transportation can help to mitigate it. So a lot of times people will say to me, like, well, there's no public transportation near me in Los Angeles. That's why I don't use it. And I'm like, well, there's no public transportation near you if you don't consider a bus public transportation. But there are lots of buses that are near almost everybody. Um, I think- we we've looked at the numbers, and uh, you know, eighty percent of people are within a reasonable walking distance of a bus in, in Los Angeles County, so you can access it. But people think the bus is for poor people, or people think the bus is not good enough for me, and that's our responsibility to make the bus more customer friendly and more inviting uh, for everyone.
0: Yes, I, I think the the I mean the, the perception is that buses are slow and potentially even unsafe and that you would only ride a bus if you needed to ride a bus. And coming to LA from the East Coast personally, I find that really sad. Buses can be such a great way to get to know your neighbors. It sounds corny, but you know, every morning, if you're waiting with the same five people at your bus stop to go in roughly the same direction, you have to interact with them in some way, even if it's just to nod.
2: And that's what we're trying to create, is we're trying to create a good enough customer experience on the bus by creating those exclusive lanes, by making the bus safe, by making the bus run frequently so that more and more people will take it and you'll have much more of a sense of community and people looking out for each other on the bus.
0: I love this focus on the way that people interact on the in these spaces. It seems like it's so much more important than just thinking about it from an abstract efficient standpoint. I like to think of this as a way to use lines to connect people instead of divide them. That kind of the use of abstract lines in the history of both my field and your field has been pretty devastating.
2: Yeah, and and we've you know we've seen that right here in Los Angeles with the freeways. I mean, we accept the freeway system as is now, but freeways and the the ubiquity of freeways throughout this region are one of the reasons that it is often very unpleasant to walk in this region. And one of the reasons that many communities, particularly low-income communities, were torn apart when those freeways were built. They divided communities, they knocked down houses, they made a tremendous impact. And um, when you build rail or you put in bus lanes, it repairs a lot of that it it has the opposite uh, effect it knits communities together it brings people together so that's one of the things we're trying to do something interesting about those freeways just thinking about your lines and abstract lines concept whenever uh, there's a movement now you probably know that to to tear down some freeways and to and to you know this happened in boston where they, they put a freeway underground and that when when people when you take streets away when you close streets to cars, for example. They just did that in 14th Street, New York. When you do that, people expect that the out- outcome will be more traffic and more problems, but it's actually the opposite. It's, 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 it's judo. You know, they, You take away that street and fewer people are going to drive and people are going to find other alternatives and that community is going to become more uh, well-knit and, and, and more cohesive and so much more pleasant. So it's really interesting to think about how we can repair some of the damage that we did uh, through, through that kind of thinking.
0: Learn more about Dr. Schenck's work in the Office of Extraordinary Innovation at metro.net slash projects slash O-E-I. Next up is artist Lisa Schulte, also known as the Queen of Neon. Lisa is an American artist best known for her work in expressive neon sculpture. Schulte began bending neon in the early 1980s, creating custom pieces and prop rentals to the entertainment industry under her Los Angeles-based studio, Knights of Neon. Neon is one of those things that seems very ephemeral at first. You're dealing with sort of thin tubes of glass, and you're dealing with a gas, and you're dealing with light and color. But it can so transform a space. It can so easily make something ordinary into something magical.
3: I've always been fascinated with light. I... I... Would say that I was a lighting designer first. Yeah. Um, I played around in nightclubs with the light board, so that was my first introduction to um, the magic of what light can do to people. I can take you where I want you to go pretty quickly with with the use of light. So, you know, it's it's a, it's a very powerful source to um, create. Feelings, energies, environments. How did you go from that to specifically bending neon? At the time I was doing the lighting, the lighting equipment was pretty primitive and it was limited to like a mirror ball and Mm -hmm. park hands. Um, It's nothing like we have today, which is all intelligent LED light fixtures that can change color at any moment you want it to. I started to introduce a little bit of neon just so I would have another... um, let's say, theme Mm -hmm. to play with with the lights. If I didn't use the regular lights, then I could use the neon as another source and then combine them together.
0: And you were sourcing neon at that point from sign shops?
3: Yeah, pretty much. Just getting what, at the time, maybe a neon star made or, you know, neon squiggly or an abstract shape, something very simple and what I could afford on my budget and the nightclub would allow me to spend. So, you know, it was limited, but you know, it did have a different light intensity than the mm-hmm. regular lights that I was using. And
0: How so? How? What? What is the intensity that's yeah, specific well, to it's, neon?
3: Um, you know, it's line art, mm-hmm. so it, it becomes more of um, you know, with a with a regular light fixture, you can sort of adjust exactly where you want that light to hit. So you have a lot more control with it. With neon, it really has its own life. The only thing I can really do with it once the the line has been bent and shaped because I can't do anything once it's done, is to control the intensity, whether I want it lighter or you know dimmer or brighter.
0: It reminds me a little bit of the status that stained glass used to have yeah. um, in churches and cathedrals. Absolutely,
3: yeah. I mean, I think it also has its own personality. It just does. Like what? Like, you know, like what, what are... I, I mean, I can do something really playful and really fun, and and, and put it in here that's going to make you smile when you see it, or make you think. If I do something in writing, it's going to make you stop and take a beat. Mm-hmm. And okay, what are you trying to say here? So you know, it can move time, it can slow time. It it it, it you know, a regular light fixture or lighting in general, I don't think will. Will make you do that, you know, because it yes. is an art form. So yes. I learn a lot about what I want to do with the neon by looking at lines. Even this right here, you know, the 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 whole cabling going on here. I, I see a sculpture, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you start. I think what you're saying is is great. I think if everybody sort of looked at each other's art form. Whether it's architectural drawings. I mean, I'm I happen to be a big fan of architectural drawings and line drawings mm-hmm. and blueprints. Uh-huh. And I save them from every movie I've ever worked oh, on. And you know, because I feel like I can't throw them out. Uh-huh. Like that would break my heart. Do you see the silhouettes? Do you see the edges of things? Mm-hmm. Or do
0: you see things as masses?
3: Yeah. Well, I think the masses might have started happening because of the ease of the computer programs. Mm-hmm. That, Absolutely. You know, I mean yeah. it's sort of like, oh, we can draw an oval. We can draw right. a circle. Just pull right. the mouse out. Right. You, know, you know, I think yeah. so. It just becomes think, about
0: pulling points. Basically, you have points yeah. instead of lines. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's all the same. But um, I, I think the like I said, I'm I'm basically a line artist because what I start with is a straight line. Mm-hmm. Everything that comes out of that was once a straight line. So it sort of dictates what I what I can do with because it's the same thickness throughout the entire tube. I I can't start something really thin and go really gradually thicker with it. I Mm -hmm. can splice in a thicker tube, but Mm -hmm. it's a pretty abrupt splice, and you see that from 8 millimeter to 15 millimeter. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's not a gradual sort of, let's get a little wider with this glass. So.
0: So fascinating.
3: Yeah, I think there came a point for me where I I really wanted to show people another side of neon. I really wanted to help bring it into the art form. I wanted to see more sculptures of neon in museums, Mm -hmm. in galleries, and that was really the biggest drive for me. Just one of the most beautiful art forms and super excited to see people trying to get into it and want to get into it and the younger younger generation wanting to be a neon artist.
0: And it seems somehow that the kind of brightness and even the kind of pop qualities of neon mm-hmm. make it seem like it's meant for Instagram. Does it still surprise you?
3: I think the number one thing that um, has always been a, a, a constant, but I think more, more so now that I'm having to you know, ship my sculptures around is really the fragility of mm-hmm. this art form I work with, and how it relates to um, life forms in itself. That we're we're all pretty fragile, even though we may look stronger than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, deep down inside, we're we're fragile. Inside a greenhouse, when you're trying to grow plants, you need gas. It creates carbon mm-hmm. gases, and that. That accelerates the growth in the plant, and my neon will not exist without gas inside of it. It's mm. it's 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 life force. It's if you don't have gas inside the tube, it it doesn't illuminate.
0: As you say, it creates spaces.
3: Mm. In a
0: way, it's like a a more delicate form of architectural production. If architects could maybe think a little bit more about the spaces that they produced as being kind of um, delineated by light or or infiltrated by light or mood affected by light, and some architects do, but many do not, we might be able to learn from some of the the kind of lifelike qualities that this ephemeral material has. Learn more about Lisa Schulte's North Hollywood studio at lisaschulteneonartist.com. That's Lisa, S C H U L T E, neonartist.com. The ARC was produced by Shelley Holcomb and the Southern California Institute of Architecture. Story editing by Kathy Hue at Our Story Productions. Music by James Thomas Marsh. I'm Marika Trotter. More stories
3: next month here at The Arc.